When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for same race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, We are lucky here in WA to have some of the best beaches in the world. Uh, My guest in this episode uh, not just enjoyed the beach but made it uh, his sporting arena as well. It's a place where he made his name. He, uh, at the time of his retirement, uh, was this country's most decorated surf life-saving champion. Uh, he's got uh, multiple championships, Australian championships, a world title to his name. He's competed at Olympics. Uh, if it could be done in or around uh, the water, uh, pretty good chance that our next guest did it and uh, did it to the highest possible level. Uh, a name that is synonymous uh, with all things surf life-saving and, and general beach-going uh, here in WA. It's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Ken Vidler. Hello, hi, Ken. Hi, Tim. How are you? I'm good. Great I, to be here. I grew up sort of uh, associating you with all things to do with the beach, you know, whether it was running around on the beach, swimming in the beach, kayaking the beach, or buying a Rip Curl T-shirt for the beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I mean, in a, in a state of beach lovers, that's, um, that's, a, that's a pretty big title to carry around with you, Ken. Yeah, well, I, I didn't realise it at the time, but basically I just grew up at Scarborough, quite close to the beach, two streets back, and had two older brothers and two younger brothers. And, yeah. And, and our parents encouraged us to be involved in surfing and mm. in the surf club. So they got us into the surf club at a very, very young age. Mm. And uh, and then when I, I started swim training at about the age of nine and progressively sort of pushed that a little bit. But um, And in the end, I started off becoming the first person from my surf club to win an Australian title. And then in the end, it was I ended up winning 20 Australian titles <laughs> in team events and, that, and yeah. individuals. So. Mm. Um, we've got an extraordinary career to, to go through with you, Ken. But, yeah, let's go right back to the start. Scarborough Surf Lifesaving Club, 1967, uh, the, the club that you joined, 1967 in Scarborough. Tell us what it was like. The Summer of Love, for instance, 1967. Well, I was, well, <laughs> probably I was, wasn't quite for you. I was probably point. a bit young to yeah. be in a Summer of Love. I would have been in 67, probably 13 years yeah. or something like that. So exactly. I, but I did, you know, com- they had state championships for under 10 yeah. snippers. And I'm pretty sure West Australia and even Scarborough Club was involved in setting up nipper movements. Is that right? And one of the, you know, more than what the East Coast had. So I, I'm pretty sure we regarded as, uh, you know, um, where it was founded, the nippers. And so... I was swimming in, in board paddling events and, and swimming in the belt in under 10 state championships. But as a 13 and 14-year-old, you're a cadet in the surf life saving. And, and as, as a 14-year-old, um, which is probably around 1968, they, I won the state titles in surf 
um, belt race and surf race and maybe board. And my club sent me to the Australian Championships, which are in yeah. Tasmania. Mm. And uh, so then I went on from there, really. So, mm. Yeah. Um, Scarborough's changed a bit over the years. What was what was the uh, good old Scarborough Surf Life Saving Club like in the well, 60s? I think it's they had much smaller premises, so yep. they have upgraded <laughs> at least two or three times. So yeah. I've seen photographs prior to me where it was just a white brick building that was in the middle of the edge of the car park on the edge of the beach and that. And what they've got now is quite fabulous. The yeah. whole beachfront's been changed. And so it has meant that they can have Australian titles at Scarborough because they have a big enough beach and mm. enough accommodation within distance to have them. So not many clubs. They used to rotate the Australian titles to each state, say so six or seven rotations to come back to the same state. Now they can't do that because it's become too big an event. Mm. And uh, But Scarborough can have it, and but mm. it's a little bit dominated by Queensland. They yeah. have the best facilities and that on the Gold Coast and even the Sunshine Coast. Yeah. Um, you yeah. mentioned before you're one of five kids sandwiched right in the middle there. Yeah. Um, a competitive bunch? Um, yeah, I think so really. But I think we all had a passion for surfing and that sort of one gave me a skill set that was um, better than a trained, just as trained pool swimmer in that. So to swim in a pool is different than swimming in the ocean in the surf. But my older brothers um, achieved a fair bit in in sport in that um, my oldest brother Don who's four years older than me represented the state in marathon running with Rob yep. Di Costello and the Langford brothers and that and so was quite competitive in that he only re and he rode boats in the surf club but to run a marathon he changed his body completely become Mr Puniverse like, <laughs> like marathon runners had oh, to it's do. it's brutal isn't it? Yeah and then my next brother Ron is two years older than me and he was in the state schoolboys football team as a 15 year old and and at the national championships, which he played in Tasmania, he got picked in the All-Australian team. And, and I think he was voted, you know, on the, each game's the third best in Australia. So, But he had problems with his back um, a few years after that and had to, not, had to give up doing football and that. So yeah. it's a bit disappointing. And yeah. my next brother um, did rep Colin. He's three years younger than me. And he, be, he became my double ski partner. And we won four Australian double skis together. And and two ski relays and he himself got places in single skis and and did represent Australia in surf life saving so about 1981 he went to America in an Australian team and yeah. Jeff's my youngest brother he he was in two Australian two Australian ski relays with me so which is <laughs> rare that we had three brothers win win the Australian title together so what a family yeah so when you were drawn to the Scarborough Surf Life Saving Club as a, as a youngster then was it a for you, was it a place where you went to indulge your love of the, the beach and the ocean and the sand and the salty air, or was it a place where you went to compete? Um, initially, it was a place to enjoy surfing that I think when, as a young kid, 13-year-old, uh, my passion was surfing. Getting up on the board. Yeah, standing yeah. up and, that's, and surfing. But then probably as a, when I got to 14, I started to take um, competing more serious, and I trained as a pool swimmer. But, and that really gave me the – you had to train like that to be competitive. In, yeah. And so probably from the age – and especially when I was 15, as a first year in junior, had three years as a junior, I, I won our state belt title, which was a bit of a surprise to me. And then at the national champs, I came second, and the chap that beat me became a senior. So they had to pick two junior swimmers in an Australian team. So as a 15-year-old, I got first picked in my Australian uh, an Australian team, and the other – uh, swimmer they picked was a guy Neil Rogers who was from Sydney and 
he actually went to two Olympic Games and two Commonwealth Games and was a better swimmer than me. And we competed against South Africa and they had a guy, John T. Skinner, who went on to set a world record for mm. 100-metre freestyle. So it was quite a competitive little group of juniors in it, in a way. But that gave me that shocked me to be picked in an Australian team. And But I thought, well, I want to prove that I deserve this. And, yeah. and at that stage, I hadn't paddled a ski and uh, done Ironman or anything like that. And that same year, Fred Annesley won the Australian title in 1970 and in the Ironman. And I took it up as a, the next year as a 16-year-old and won our state champs in the Open and Junior and won the Australian Junior one. So yeah. then, from then on, I, it was a little bit of a glamour event, the mm. Ironman. So I took it more serious <laughs> and, and went and, on. And did rather well. Yeah, so. <laughs> which we'll get to in a moment. But tell us about your, um, you know, the the household you grew up in. Were you by the beach growing up? And I mean, mum and dad, five kids who are all in their own way excellent at sport, but some different sports. That's a that's a lot of running around for mum and dad. Yeah, they um, they encourage us to do sport. We just mm. expected that you would do sport. So if anything, I I played football when I was younger, and so probably took football more serious than swimming and that. Um, but they didn't push us to do swimming. So I think when I got to 13, my older brothers thought, well, look, they've had enough of swimming training, so they wanted to give it up and, and they were allowed to, really. So, And I thought, well, I want to... Uh, I trained under a chap that I thought trained too hard, <laughs> a guy, Kevin Duff, who was a fantastic coach and produced Olympians. And and uh, and and I thought, well, I'm, I'm not quite as comfortable swimming in his squads because was, he was a slave driver. <laughs> so I went to a guy, Tony Housen, and he seemed to have a different attitude to it. And in the end, he got more out of me, really. And so, yeah. But I certainly um, feel a lot of gratitude for him. To, yeah. um, but he, and he himself had been an ex-surf swimmer and, and that, but he actually never went down to see me compete or that. But yeah. he had a big influence on making me a better athlete. Really. Yeah. Yeah, well, he obviously did something right because uh, we could spend all day just yeah. reeling off the, the titles that you won over many years. We'll get through as many as we can, though, Ken, right after we take a break. Uh, this is Inspiring Stories. Ken Vidler is our special guest. We'll be back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Ken Vidler is our special guest in this episode. Uh, Ken, obviously you showed uh, great promise uh, from very early on in your teens or, or even yep. sooner. By the mid-teens, by the time you're 15 or so, you're, uh, you're off competing um, at a national yeah. level. Um that's a quite an, an adventure for you know a fifteen year old kid from Perth suddenly, you know, thrust into these uh, various stages around the country. Yeah, well, uh, what are your memories of that? Well, I guess it, my memory, first memory, was when I was fourteen, getting um, winning a number of state titles, and and my surf club. My parents weren't that well off, but we thought we were quite well off. But yeah, um, you know, they didn't have thoughts of sending me to Australian titles, and so my surf club raised some money and, and said, we'll sponsor you because you're showing promise. And yeah. so they sent me to Clifton Beach in Tasmania as a 14-year-old to compete. And, and uh, so I think, yeah, so... As a swimmer, principally. As a swimmer, really. So, yeah, yeah uh, as my main... Th I was quite good on the board, but they didn't... At the National Champs as a cadet then, they only had mm. two swimming events. So mm. I, I was just there to swim. 
And uh, but at the end of the day, swimming was my weakest link in mm. the thing. So I took up when I was sixteen, took up ski paddling, and, and that became my strongest event. And, yeah. But I was always quite good on a board. But I think swimming training helped that, and so yeah. I only went in one Australian title in board paddling and got a medal in it. And so yeah. I think for um, quite a while, I, and it, I was the only person in Australia that had got individual medals in swimming, board paddling, and ski paddling. Yeah. So um, yeah, you were quite a trailblazer then. Weren't you, in terms yeah. of your accomplishments? Yeah. Well, I think even when I would go to Australian titles, I would have a look at the program that had past winners of different events. And so in the Ironman, there was a chap, it was fairly early in the history of Ironman, there was a chap, Barry Rogers from Maroubra Surf Club, that had won three Australian titles. And in the end, I matched what he had done. And a guy, Phil Coles, that went to one or two or three Olympics in kayaking, he, he was the, the most successful ski paddler and had won... Um, three Australian titles, and and then I ended up getting to winning four Australian titles, and and then, um, but it wasn't until they had to, they cel- wanted to celebrate the seventy fifth anniversary of life saving, that I hadn't even thought of it. That they said, Let, let's have a look at the records of um, for the first seventy five years and see who's been the most successful competitor. And uh, as it turned out, they said we'll give three points for a gold, two for silver, one for bronze. And as it turned out. You know, I came out really on top. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah. And But since then, there have been uh, the next one that surpassed my record was Trevor Hendy. Um, it, but it became a semi-professional type mm. of, you could be, especially an Ironman, that they he could make a living out of it. So yeah. He probably made a living for 10 years or so. And then Clint Robinson, who was a specialist ski paddler, but also he won Australian titles on board paddling. Um, he ended up winning, I think Trevor Hendy ended up winning about 28 Australian titles or more now, probably won one with his son yeah. a few years ago. Uh, Clint Robinson got to about 36 and and Shannon Eckstein, I think, now has probably surpassed that. So he's won the most Australian Ironman. Yeah. He won eight, I think, a couple of years ago. Yeah. So where Trevor Hendy got to seven, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But my, my memories of that is, and probably even before that, maybe with Grant Kenny, it, it became this, as you say, this uh, more professional, very televised, um, quite a glamorous yeah. sport in, in many ways. Uh, we, do you see yourself historically as being kind of <laughs> I was, just on the wrong side of that, almost a precursor just, to that? I, was just on the, I think I was on the wrong side of that, really, and yeah. just prior to it, but it led into that. Yeah. So it was even for me, the Ironman event was the glamour event of the surf carnival. And so I then, though, was very much amateur in what I did. Certainly never competed to expect to make any money out of it. Um, and Grant Kenny, he became famous because he won in 1980. He won the junior and the open Ironman in the same year. Um, and I had won our state when I was the last year junior, won our state champs in both the open and junior. And what I realised in that year, I could have gone in the open, but I thought, well, I better just try and make sure of winning the junior, which I did. But I won the junior by a minute and was half a minute faster than the winner of the Open. So I probably could have done both. You could have done both. Yeah. You could have done and a Grant no Kenny before has, Grant Kenny did it. Yeah, <laughs> no one else has done it since Grant Kenny. But what I only realised a bit after, he won the junior and the Open as a second-year junior where he had another year in the juniors. And he won the Australian Open, but he didn't win the junior. So yeah. a, a chap... Russell Cooper beat him in the junior one. So, yeah. you know, the surf conditions come into it. But Grant won four Australian Ironman, which was one more than I did. And that was where he sort of was 
famous for, when they introduced the professional circuit, he was involved in probably setting it up with his father, um, but he wasn't as competitive in the longer distance events. So someone like Trevor Hendy would outdo him and Guy Leach and that. Yep. So Grant was probably a stronger and more explosive athlete and yep. and uh, and ended up going to two Olympic Games in kayaking. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so he – but it became more – they they had a good format for it and to run it on TV and and so it become even more glamorous and and guys did make a living out of it yeah and especially you know the top guys advertising breakfast cereals and all sorts yeah. uh, on the sidelines uh, as well um, do you when you look back on it are you a little bit miffed that you didn't get that opportunity to capitalise on it in that way not not really I'd never thought of it as being if anything your main reason for doing it is the passion for yeah. competing and and excitement to represent Australia. Mm. Um, so I'd probably resent people that think that they go in it, that they've got to make a living out of it because very few do make a living out of it. Mm. So the ones that expect to make it, um, you know, it's that's not what it's about. You really – and the guys that are good even making a living, they're, they're, it's their passion anyway. So Yeah, and you've they, got to work bloody hard for it too. Yeah, so it's their passion for competing in that and, and uh, so – that's that's the main yeah. motivation that I think that I see that they have really. T- tell me about some of the weird and wonderful, crazy, amazing places that you went to overseas to compete. We'll leave the Olympics out of it for a moment, yeah. but well, one one time in 1976, I won the Australian Ironman and, and the skis and a ski relay, and they, the Australian, I wasn't aware, but the South Africans said, "Look, can you send over to us the, your champion ski paddler or Ironman, which I was both." to do this 244-kilometre paddle race along the coast from Port Elizabeth to East London, which was broken up into uh, four segments, and it was approximately 60 kilometres per day. And so what was interesting, which I went over there and did that, and they, they'd had that for a number of years, so they were actually quite expert at it. But mm. what they did, they said, look, bring your surf ski that you use in Australia for a six or 700-metre event, to do this 240 kilometer where they their specifications on the craft were unlimited so it turned out we have weight limits and which was at the time 40 pounds approximately where the, the, when i got over there i had a 40 pound ski with a rocker that went through it and and they had a 20 pound ski with which was like a ocean kayak mm. and cut through the water a lot better but i ended up coming second in, in it and no australian's done better than that mm. but um what was interesting too was that i when I got there about a week before and was um, training in the at Port Elizabeth Bay, and during the race as well, the same thing happened. Every day I'd go paddling, I'd see half a dozen hammerhead sharks and oh, good. around, and so I wasn't quite used to that. And <laughs> I'd become a little bit blasé, but you know. So it, I remember one time I was out, and you were paddling probably at this stage a kilometre out to sea, and and I you would see the hammerhead sharks just cruising on the surface, and then one sort of skedaddled around when it saw me skedaddle around and come up behind me and I thought oh my god what's going on? <laughs> made you and, paddle a bit faster yeah and so I, be, I become a bit blasé because not, none you know it seemed to have yeah. no one had any trouble with them and that but it was a bit confronting mm. and I think on the last day's paddle I said I'll oh, be careful you're going in in just near this harbour but there's a big white point of sharks hanging around there that they've been seeing so I think so, South Africa's had big problems with sharks mm. um, but certainly the hammerhead didn't yeah I, yeah I, I become blasé to seeing them really yeah. and which surprised me you must have seen a few sharks in the water in your time though Ken 
No, generally not. So no? I think it's a lot different times now than what yeah. it was then. So I think I'm, you know, only once or twice have I. Yeah. I think once I was surfing at Yelling Up and paddling back out and got the shock of my nearly a heart attack because a black thing come underneath me, but it was turned out to be a dolphin. So, right. you know, but that was scary enough because it was within... <laughs> For a moment, you didn't know it was. I didn't know that it was that, really. But, yeah. Uh, and I think one time I did go, I was paddling out, there's some reefs off of Trig Island sort of to... Sorrento, um, two or three kilometres offshore, and there was waves breaking. I was on a double ski um, and got behind the reef, and there was this swirling pool of sharks in a feeding frenzy, and so not necessarily big ones, but I went yeah. quite close to that, and I thought, look, actually that was pretty dangerous, really, if they had have, you know, frightened them or something like that, and they jumped at you or something and knocked you in, you would have been gone really so yeah so in hindsight i thought oh that was yeah more dangerous than what i actually realized yeah, yeah. before we go to a break ken just tell us about the the conditions obviously you grew up um in wa waters how well did that prepare you for competing you know in south africa up and down the east coast you know in tasmania in hawaii wherever it might have been um, how did the WA conditions compare to where you had to go and compete yeah. a lot of the time? If anything, I think West Australia's got fairly calm conditions and that, yeah. so it's not challenging really. We've got a really nice sea breeze that creates a chop, so I become really proficient at paddling in the chop. I thought that was probably one of my better strengths to be able to catch the runners and do things like that. But you know, different Australian champs had quite calm conditions. South Australia was dead calm, and Tasmania was quite small. But then. Queensland and, and New South Wales can get big surf and generally mm. do. And I partly thought, look, my passion when I was a kid was um, surfing. So I actually spent a lot of time even at Scarborough surfing. But my parents had a holiday place at Dunsborough and so and my older brothers were keen surfers. So from the age of nine, I think I was surfing out the back of yelling up. And I think, and that's quite challenging surf. So I think if I had to come straight from pool swimming to swimming at Scarborough, um, it wouldn't have given me as as good skill sets in the ocean. And so mm. in, in uh, Queensland at times I did have to compete in challenging surf. And mm. so I think, well, look, a combination of being a keen surfer as a young kid um, stayed with me. And, and uh, so I was able to adapt mm. to biggest and challenging surf. Yeah. And so certainly in South Africa where, where I competed at a world champs at Durban, they actually had quite big surf at, and it was quite challenging yeah. to be there. So I suppose it's one of those... Um not unique, but one of those uh, rarer sports where there is such an important factor in the competition that you can't control. You know, uh, yeah. swimmers in a in a in a pool sense, generally the conditions are fairly consistent. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when you I think in does. the ocean all the time, you know, that's that's Mother Nature yeah. dishing up whatever it's going to dish up on that day. Yeah. So you, I think it can even make you a better sports person because yeah. you, even if I'm the best I've got to really try my hardest because I could get knocked and you've got to I'm going to have to come back and conquer some, the ocean as well yeah you've got to conquer the ocean and other people are better in the chop than they are in flat so they think mm. well if it's challenging I'll be competitive and so it, it gives more people have got to go so even I've, yeah. I've seen Grant Keeney win Australian titles where you think he's not going to win this because he's too far behind and the others get blocked by the surf and he comes through and gets a break and yeah. so you think, gee, there's a bit of luck involved, and uh, but certainly the skill set has got to be there. And yeah. so, I've seen um, Clint Robinson in the ski paddling, where he's on the Gold Coast. He's been in some really challenging and way behind, and sixth or eighth place coming in, and, and all the people in front of him get wiped out. And yeah. So, but he he's 
got a skill set that has got him through. Exactly. We won't call it a Stephen Bradbury moment. <laughs> no, it isn't, though. Local knowledge. Uh, really keen to hear about your adventures in Moscow as part of the Australian Olympic team competing uh, over there. But we need to take a break, Ken, so we'll get into that right after we uh, take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Ken Vidler is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing all about the, uh, the adventures and the accomplishments and there are many of them. Uh, of uh, Australia's uh, most decorated surf life-saving representative, uh, Ken Vidler. Ken, you had so many titles to your name already by, um, you know, the, the mid to late 70s. Uh, the Moscow Olympics was in your sights. Uh, you were part of an Australian uh, four-man kayak team. Moscow Olympics will go down, I suppose, uh, in the, the history books as not just being a, a great Olympic Games, but also just so political uh, we had boycotts. We had all sorts of international politics that were playing out at the times. Uh, as someone who was just wanting to compete at the Olympics, what was that like? Well, it was frustrating to say the least. Mm. But, um, I had just missed out on the 76 Olympic Games. I tried out for that and was the second best paddler in Australia at the time. And they took a team of six or so away and where they could have put me in that team easily. And so I, I devoted a couple of years to it. and A bit of WA bias there, was there? Yeah, really the selectors were from Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and their yeah. job was to see how many of their own state that they could um, get into the team. Common um, story. Yeah, and so, <laughs> so it sort of is a headache. And even there's one administrator from West Australia that had said, look, I, after I saw how you got treated in the selection, that I, he got onto the board to become a selector himself to... You know, because he he was not happy with what had happened with me in in '76, and uh, probably '84 as well. I tr- I made a comeback there, and and uh, in the singles I got the I was probably third best in Australia at that time, and they took a team of about eight or nine, and and I even I beat Grant Kenny and his partner who paddled with me in the previous Olympics, in the singles, and the next week I won the surf ski and the single and double ski, and and so they probably could have put me in in. 84 as well but yeah um in 80 when they said look we don't necessarily i was quite disappointed because i devoted a few years to it i'd moved to melbourne for two or three years to train at the hub of where it was happening and uh and got picked in the team and we had to wait about two months and to see whether we we're going to go to the olympics and um and the government recommended we don't but it was left up to each sport i think to mm. to do it and sports that were funded by the government um generally couldn't go because they weren't going to be funded. But generally when we went to World Champs, we had to pay our own costs to get there. So we mm. had to pay our own airfares and accommodation, and that, which was tricky, but we we weren't dependent on the government. So our sport said, look, you we'll, could go. we could go. Mm. And so, But it, certainly there was a two-month period that we're um, not sure whether we're going. And I actually moved back to Perth because I thought, well, I, you know, I'm in Melbourne to in the middle of winter anyway. <laughs> and... And uh, yeah, where I, I felt they were using sport politically, and yeah. I, I resented that really. I thought, well, they, they, you know, and and the reason for it, um, America um, didn't want Russia in Afghanistan, but America's been stuck in Afghanistan ever since. Yeah, not much has changed there, has no. it? No. Was there pressure on you to not 
go once you made the commitment as a sport and as a team to go there? Did you cop any heat for that? No, no, we didn't have any heat at all. But you're just generally aware of you know some of the swimmers that were individuals got talked into it, and um, I've forgotten their names, but some of the female swimmers, you know, um, might be Michelle Ford or something that was um, pressured to not go, and maybe even got paid by the government not to go. Um, so you're aware of other sports that, like hockey and and not sure where the water polo went as well. But so you you could see other sports being pressured that they weren't to go. But once we decided that we would be accepted to go, um, we're we're happy to go there. Really. Mm. So, but um, and and Moscow put on a big show. So yeah. Was, what was it? What was it like there? Yeah. So what what I think they built a Olympic village for the athletes and that. But I think all the buildings or the apartment block that they built was wasn't really up to standard, <laughs> and uh, but they certainly, if, if anything, the word was that they'd moved out a couple of million of the youth of the of the city to clean it up to make it, um, you know, make it a, a better presented to say, look, this system of government we have here is the best one, and so, mm. and and I think China did the same. Beijing would look fantastic. They built the best facilities they possibly could, and. So it's showcasing what that country is, mm. and so that we probably did the same. We did the best we could with Sydney Olympics, and so each country that gets it does try and present a fabulous, mm. you know, saying, "Look, we've we've done well." As as an experience, though, for you going, you know, at the height of the Cold War, uh, going into a, a country like Russia when all of this international politics was was going on, how did you? How do you reflect on the experience of it now? I mean, putting the result to one side, yeah. how do you reflect on the, um, the experience for you? Well, it was, was interesting. There was a big uh, separation between the West and the East yeah. and and uh, the communist countries. And we had spent a little bit of time in some communist countries in lead-ups to previous world champs. And we had spent training camps in Romania and the two previous years. And we actually went to Romania this time to train prior to the Olympics, but... They basically, we were a bit of a threat to them in the paddling events. So they actually then, when we got there, we thought everything was organised. They said, look, well, you're, you're not welcome here. We're going to not lend you any boats or anything. So mm. we actually had to make a decision on the run and leave uh, Romania. And we actually, our manager had been a, um, a Hungarian. And so he had contacts in Hungary. So we actually hopped on a train and went to Hungary and and did our preparation training in Hungary and, and then flew to Moscow. But yeah. we weren't sort of worried about safety or anything like that. And, yeah. But uh, but certainly there were little headaches mm. thrown in the road. Yeah. Quite different, I imagine, to uh, the Olympics that followed it <laughs> in Los Angeles. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think the Los Angeles Olympics, they had a, um, what do you call it, reciprocal um, boycott from a lot of the communist countries. So yes. some events we did really well in better than we would normally because mm. the Eastern Bloc countries are a strong powerhouse in a lot mm. of events and it's a big block. And yep. so, you know, East Germany and Romania, Hungary, Poland yep. and Russia didn't go to Los Angeles. Mm. So there was just as big boycott of Los Angeles as what there was of Moscow. Mm. Um, as your career started to transition, um, you know, through the various phases you mentioned before, you must have started to see a finish line when you might sort of stop competing at that elite level. Did you start to turn your mind to what the next chapter in your life might be like? Yeah, definitely. I think I thought after Moscow I would have to start getting a proper job. <laughs> so I was at university until I was 21, virtually. Yep. And so then... Studying? 
I did commerce really. Yep. So and uh, so I thought I, I want to. I did work for the government um, tax office for up until Moscow, and then after that I left the government. And yeah, but I did have a, a think. Well, I've had I've had enough. I've got to try and work. And and in, in the end, in the 1983, I started. I set up a surf shop, and mm. that, which was sort of what partly related to your passion, but then actually it's running a business, so you've got to survive. And, mm. and that, so that's a seven-day-a-week job. And, and in 1983, I, I, I got married in, after the Olympics in 1980 and had started having a family in 1983. So um, I ended up having five children, and so commitments to that work. Keeps you busy. And <laughs> the commitments to working and family were stronger than what the commitments. But I did make try and make a comeback in 84 to go to the Olympics. Yeah. I just missed out, but I... I was the week after the selection trials. I had the surf champs, and I did win a couple of more Australian titles: single ski and double ski, and and got picked to represent Australia in '85. And so that was sort of the end of my career in '85. Yeah, that was just one song. Yeah, that was yeah. just one song. Were you you quite happy to to wrap it up then? You were ready to. I think so. Yeah. So I'd I'd gone from 15 year old to a 30 year old to yeah, you know, saying, well, look, you're not. Not here to make money out of this sport, and and so wasn't really an option. At yeah, that it wasn't point, really was an it? option. No. Yeah, so you you had to look at trying to, mm. yeah, mm. Do, do a normal life. Really, yeah. And your normal life, of course, was uh, yeah, selling all kinds of merchandise. Uh, you know that you might want to take to the beach, wear to the beach, wear around, whatever you're doing. And um, I suppose it was a name that uh, that was so closely associated with uh, all of those famous surfing brands. Uh, here in in WA, and you built yourself a quite a nice little empire for a while, didn't you? I'll, yeah. We'll so get, we'll take a break, Ken, and we'll I'll get you to talk us through that right after we come back. Yeah. This is inspiring stories. Ken Vidler is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, Ken Vidler is our special guest. Uh, Ken, just at the end of your career, just give us a quick tally board. <laughs> how many how many titles, trophies, championships did you have under your belt by that point? Yeah. Um, well, really, I mainly remember my... Uh Australian titles because yep. that's sort of the most significant, and so it, it broke it down. I, I ended up winning twenty Australian titles, yep. and I think I had something over twenty places. But um, in that, there were three Open Ironman and two Junior Ironman, there were four single ski and one junior ski. There were four um, double ski and and five ski relays, of which um, two of the ski relays were with my two brothers and. All of the four double skis were with my younger brother, Colin, and there was one Taplin relay as well, which um, was about 1971. I was in the Taplin relay, but right. which is a, a strong team of it, mm. really. So in that, I actually paddled a board to, mm. to do it, really. But And then the, I only had one world championship. World championships were fairly new and life-saving, and it was in 1974 in South Africa, and I ended up winning the single ski, got second in the double ski, and second in the Ironman. So... And, uh, and then in the Olympics, um, we came eighth in the final of the mm. four-man kayak. We're in the London Olympics, the Australian four-man kayak won it, so I think that was mm. fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah, so. That's uh, quite a legacy. And, and one time I only realised a few <laughs> years ago that I, 
I won eight Open Ironman in our state in a row. So yeah. And two were as a junior, and then the next six in a row were as an open competitor. But I stopped when I moved to Melbourne to yeah. concentrate on kayaking. So an extraordinary career. As I mentioned, uh, by the time you retired, you were uh, the country's most decorated surf life-saving representative, and you've been... Uh, uh, given the title of West Australian Legend of the Surf, which is the single highest uh, honour that can be bestowed upon a, an individual competitor in uh, the sport of surf life-saving in WA. And I suppose for you venturing then into the retail space where you're selling surfing kind of brands, pretty unique status to yeah. pretty unique name to put above a, a shop sign to lure people in there. Um it was a, a Did you go into that sort of, you know, almost naively? Did you know what you were doing when you started your surf shop, Ken? I think I'd say I was reasonably naive. Yeah. I, I picked an area that I felt um, surf clothing was sort of becoming popular, where traditionally when I was a kid, surf shops were sold surfboards, made and sold surfboards and yep. little else. But um, the surf brands are becoming stronger and stronger. And I thought, well, look, Cottesloe is a pretty good area. To I was living in Swanwell at the time, and, and Cottesloe is a good area that, isn't catered for that, and it mm. turned out it, it is a good area that it's the people are water orientated, whether it be the river or the ocean, and um, and it and it was a good decision. But certainly, I think I would say I was naive about what a surf shop is and and retailing. So you, I, I've seen other shops open where the kids are passionate windsurfers or or surfers, and and they want to just surf all day. But basically, it's uh, it's a business, so you've got to really uh, make decisions and take gambles on ordering mm. six months or nine months ahead of, of what you're going to sell and and the agents that sell to you are trying to sell you as much as they can. I bet. And it's your problem once you've got it to get rid of it, really. So certainly it was a, a wake-up call that it's not what – just because your passion was in the ocean and surf, um, running a business is entirely yeah, different. So you've got to make some ruthless decisions. Were you behind the counter much? Um, I think so. I, I also was involved in setting up the book work because I think um, you've got to be on top of where you, you know, keeping your records correctly. And, yep. and that's how I was aware of, of I would initially do the books myself and, and then get a bookkeeper to take over from me. And, mm. But I would be constantly be aware of what, where I was at mm. in, the, in the bookwork department. But certainly I, I spent a lot of time on the floor as well. And it was yep. a seven-day-a-week business and probably it was um, – more important on Saturday and Sunday than what during the week was. So, yeah. so you it does cut in. You've got a bit of balance between your family life and and doing that. And so I think it does wear you down after a while. There must have been a few people come in for a bit of a hero worship moment though over the years. Where they can well, well generally not. What, what <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I think what was funny is that the parents knew my name as being a past athlete and champion, but. The kids just knew my name as being he owns the surf shop, and yeah. that'd be a great thing. Um, so certainly the yeah the kids that I was dealing with, well, now they're older and that, but they were only aware of what the surf surf shop and yeah. presented and that sort of thing. So I know we did some. Uh, in, I remember one event promotion event we had um, Tony Hawk, the really famous skateboarder there, and we had hundreds of people outside. We had a, and so it was bigger than Ben Hur and that. Yeah, but, I'll bet. Um, so, if anything, some of those things are memorable, really. Mm. Uh, one store became a few stores. Um, 
that's obviously a, you know an accomplishment in it, in itself. But you have been out of the retail game for some time now, haven't you? Yeah, Although so your name still stands above. Yeah. So the, in Cottesloe, the store still has the, the, shop. the name Viddler on it, and so and I mm. think it's going quite okay. Where a lot of yeah. stores have is that, fallen. Is that weird that it's still um, got your it, name on the? Yeah, it is building? really. It is. Yeah. So I think my my brothers or my children think. Oh, it's, <laughs> and and initially, I think that the people that own it um, weren't sure of you know how to run a surf shop and that they were new to it themselves so they had a learning curve i think as as to how to do it but yeah so but i couldn't sell it without my name really i had to um let them have it and that that's over 20 years ago that mm. they've taken it over but mm. i did have uh, set up one as well in Fremantle when the america's cup was on and and then i had one plaza arcade and hay street mall that only had it about a year and one of my past staff had bought it and he did really well with that one and but my last surf shop I had was on the Gold Coast in Queensland. And, yeah. and um, that one, I ran that for about five years and then um, I owned the premises and sold the business and Billabong was my tenant for nearly 10 years at the end of it. And mm. so I, I found well, that was better, easier to run it as the landlord than the, yeah. than the operation itself. You probably got out of uh, retail just at the right time then, Ken. Masterstroke. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, in terms of your love affair with the ocean, just uh, as, a, as a final question, Ken, does that love affair still exist? Do you still get in the water at every opportunity? Well, I did for a while, so I, yeah. But I, and I used to com- be involved in the Malibu surfing competitions a little bit, um, but I put on a fair bit of weight, and so I think I... If anything, I can only hang my hat on a couple of yelling up Malibu classics. <laughs> and around the year 2000, I went in, but I was riding a 12-foot Malibu and uh, everyone was riding nine and a half foot, that sort of thing. They had to be above nine feet. And in my age category, I, for two years in a row, I won the category. Mm. It was in quite tough, challenging surf. And But I, I, the last two or three years, I've not... I've, my 12-foot board's gone missing and, I, <laughs> and I, I, I've replaced it with a stand-up paddleboard, but I haven't been getting out very much yeah. at all. All right. Well, I think you've probably done your fair share of time in the water. Yeah. And you've so many former glories you can, you can legitimately hang your hat on. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of your incredible uh, career and your post-racing uh, life with us. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks very much, Tim. Thank you very much. You've been hearing the inspiring story of Ken Vidler here on 882 6PR, uh, our latest uh, edition of Inspiring Stories. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We'll look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.